Let me ask you, have you ever come across a real-life fanatic? Someone in whom one impulse, one thing has taken over all others in their life. A fanatic once defined by Winston Churchill as someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Have you ever met one? I read about one uh, this week. His name is Simon Burfield and this is his story. A self-confessed Lego fanatic is getting ready to be married after finally meeting a girl he loves as much as his Lego. Simon Burfield's fiancée, Stephanie Nichols, is so understanding that she proposed to him by giving him a Lego rose and ring at Legoland in Windsor. Simon, a 27-year-old from Hampshire, told the Daily Mirror, I never thought I'd find a girl I love as much as my Lego. He says, I can see the slight oddness of my hobby, so I wanted to make sure that Stephanie was okay with it by mentioning it on our first date. But if she hadn't been, I guess we wouldn't have got together. Simon owns more than a million Lego bricks and spends hours every day playing with them. His hobby costs him £300 a month and he has more than 200 models cluttering up his home. Simon and Stephanie are now planning their Lego-themed wedding for next year. Got to be honest, it's hard not to agree with Simon's own assessment of his fanaticism. It's all a bit odd. But that's the nature of being a fanatic about anything, isn't it? You stand out like a sore thumb. Take, for example, the guy on the top of your outlines there at the centre of the picture. One lone Australian supporter amongst a sea of Croatian fans. It's taken at the last Football World Cup and he seems utterly oblivious to the fact that he is alone in the crowd, focused on his team, waving their flag. Makes me proud. (laughs) We won that game, incidentally. Well, have you ever met a fanatic? Well, let me ask uh, another question. Uh, Are you fanatical about anything? Lego, perhaps? A football team? Is there anything over which you will not change your mind for anyone? Well, the passage we look at today is a call from our Lord Jesus to be a fanatic. And not just for any cause, but for his cause. Let's have a look at it together. Matthew 10 starting at verse 32. And as we look at this passage, we're, we're continuing to look at a section of Matthew's Gospel that explores that very thing, what it means to be a fanatic when it comes to Jesus. Now, the Gospel doesn't use the word fanatic. It, it uses another word meaning the same thing, disciple. And what's so helpful about this word disciple is it automatically and intrinsically points us away from ourselves towards another, to Jesus A disciple has, by definition, a teacher. They are a servant with a master. But being Jesus' disciple is not just adding him to our lives as perhaps an apprentice would a master, but in a very real sense, Jesus becomes our life. Florence Nightingale knew this when she wrote in her diary, I am 30 years of age, the age at which Jesus began his mission. Now no more childish things. No more vain things. And years later, as she'd entered her heroic life of service, when asked to give an explanation of why she'd been able to accomplish so much, she said this, I can give only one explanation. I have kept nothing back from God. That is discipleship in a nutshell. To keep nothing back from God. Just as Jesus kept nothing back from God. 
And that's where we as his followers fit in. You see it there when we looked at last week in in verse 24 of chapter 10. Jesus says, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a student to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And in recent chapters of Matthew's Gospel, if you turn back to them, you'll see the shape of Jesus' life, the, the very life that we are to follow. We see Jesus with great authority and power and yet he uses that authority and power for the good of others, not for their exploitation. We see him bring division every time he enters into a new conversation, rejecting those who are so full of themselves that they have no room for him and embracing those who have so little of themselves left, the sinner, the sick, the broken-hearted, for they know their desperate need. And Jesus, seeing a world full of desperate need like that, sends out his twelve, his disciples, first them and then later us, into a world with one simple goal, to be his followers, to imitate his way of life, to reflect his priorities, to announce his authority, to hold out his peace, And as Jesus sends us into the world to do that, he knows he is calling us to a task that will demand everything of us, requiring that we keep nothing back from God. And so what he gives us here in Matthew 10, as we saw last week and will continue today, are his instructions of how we can do that, how we can be his disciples. And really at the heart of the instructions that we saw last week and today, Jesus is speaking about the two deepest human emotions, Fear and love. Jesus knows that these are the the key things that we need to get right if we are to be his disciples. Last week we saw Jesus teaching about fear, especially the fear of bringing the news that Jesus is king into a hostile world. His command in the face of those fears was simple. Have no fear. It is in fact the most common command God gives us in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Have no fear. And it's the most common because he knows us well. He knows how much fear drives and shapes the way we live. And so he commands us, don't fear the small things, the things that we make so very big in our hearts, the fear of suffering as his disciple, the fear of rejection, the fear of the cost, the fear perhaps of failure. In the face of all of those, he says, have no fear. But what's so wonderful about Jesus' words to us here in Matthew 10 is having made this massive call on us in the face of realistic fears all around us, having told us not to be afraid of any of them, he doesn't just sort of leave us to sort of psych ourselves up to feel us living. No, he gives us the ultimate antidote to any fear. Love. And not just any love, but perfect love. For as 1 John 4.18 puts it, only perfect love drives out fear. You see, if the key to faithful discipleship and passionate discipleship is getting fear right, the second key is getting love right. Have a look at verse 34. Do not suppose that, that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. 
Now at first glance this is an astounding statement for the Prince of Peace to make, isn't it? That he has not come to bring peace but a sword to set people against each other, even people linked by incredibly strong bonds of love, father-son, mother-daughter, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law. I've got to be honest, as I was reading it this week, that was the one that seemed like the odd one out. It doesn't actually seem to need a lot of strain some of the time. But he goes to the very heart of things, our family relationships, and he says, I've come to bring a sword into those relationships. Now to see what Jesus is driving at here, you've got to go to the next verse, verse 37, where he says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, while at first it looks like Jesus is calling us to break strong bonds of love, what he's actually calling us to do is he's saying, I know you love your family, your mother, your father, your son, your daughter. What I want from you is a love even stronger than that. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then your love for him, your love for his honour, his ways will have no equal. And this will, says Jesus, not possibly, but definitely lead to disruption in your family relationships. But Jesus says to us in these verses, it can be no other way. If you love anyone, even mother or daughter, even father or son more than me, you have forfeited the privilege of discipleship. Now don't mishear this. As Jesus' disciple, he will more than likely send you back into your family to love and to care for them in ways that perhaps you might not have done other than him. And I've seen this again and again in our church family, people who are remarkably and fully devoted to the Lord Jesus and yet demonstrate incredible and sacrificial love within their family, sometimes in very difficult circumstances, will know that honours him. But also here in these verses, that the very blunt challenge they offer us as Christian families to the way we can so easily order our households. It's easy for us as families to become, our families, our households to be our first love the first fruits of our time and our money and our affection go to our household, not to him. Our love can be given to them without any connection whatsoever to our love for him because we give anything for our children when that sort of devotion is reserved only for him. You can see it in the way sometimes we communicate to our children that our household, not Jesus, is our first love encouraging them into pursuits that will hamper their growth as Christians, whether it be sport on Sunday, the music lesson on the night, they could be at small group, whatever it is. And we do it because we love them and we want them to have all the opportunities that time affords. But if our first love is Jesus and if we long for him to be their first love, we will not make it hard for them, nor will we confuse them by our priorities and our decisions. And I think it's a challenge even for the way we as husbands love our wives. It can show up our wrong ordered love. If you're a husband, you are to love Christ more than her. Which means, of course, that when you demonstrate love for her along many different ways, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, service, touch, whatever love language she happens to have, 
Along with that, the love that she needs to see most in you is your love for him. And my love for her needs to be centred on the longing that she will treasure him more than me. And if I do that, my marriage will flourish. But here also the challenge of these words to disciples of Christ who find themselves in families where there are unbelievers. And I've spoken to many people who have the very real fear that if they make their love for the Lord Jesus central or obvious in their household, if they make it obvious that they listen to his voice above all others, that it will make relationships strained. It's a very real concern because when you love him more than your family, there will be divisions. I remember seeing it uh, in a good friend of mine, Greg, who became a Christian in his teenage years. And as a result of becoming a Christian, he was going to be baptised one Sunday night at the church. And for him, this was the big night, really, of his life, where he got to publicly declare that he trusted the Lord Jesus. Huge night, and he longed for his parents to be there, but they refused. For him, this was a massive, for them, this was a massive wrong turn in his life. They considered they'd failed him, that he was following Jesus and not his dad. The truth is, he had done what verse 32 calls him to do, acknowledged Jesus before men and it had come at great cost. But he knew that he would be acknowledged by Jesus before his father in heaven. You see, Greg's discipleship brought division, very painful division. But it's nowhere near as painful as the division that comes on the last day when he is acknowledged by his Lord and his father is not. If Greg kept quiet about Jesus, his dad may never have known how vitally important it is to know and acknowledge the Lord Jesus. I've seen it uh, even more personally uh, in my own family. Uh, during um, our teenage years, uh, my sister and I, my sister who, who wasn't a Christian, uh, really our teenage years is where my parents really took off as Christians, really uh, went from strength to strength. And it seemed every step they took towards Christian maturity strained the relationship between them and my sister all the more. It was horrible to watch. Slow separation of family. And while things are much improved now, it is clear to me looking back that Jesus brought a sword into my home and we are still bleeding from it. But it can be no other way. And just when you think Jesus has asked too much of you, he asks even more in verse 38. Not only will he call you to love him more than your family, he says, but more than your life. Verse 38, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here I think we hit the bedrock of spiritual reality. As for Jesus, so for us. As the way for him led all the way to the cross, so will it for us, to the same place. You see, at the very heart of discipleship is a love for Jesus that expresses itself in giving my life away for his sake. Jesus' demands on his disciples in these verses are not token, are they? He says to you and to me, don't fear anything beside me. Don't love anyone as much as me and give your life away for me. Now I reckon if anyone 
And I mean anyone asked those three things of you other than Jesus, it would be the height of arrogance and cruelty, wouldn't it? So why can he ask it of you and yet avoid any hint of arrogance or cruelty? Well, let me give you the reason the Bible does. You see, the claims that Jesus is making on your life will, to our world, look ridiculous. To be a fanatic for Jesus is as foolish as life gets. As one uh, person said, there is nobody as enslaved as the fanatic. The person in whom one impulse, one love has assumed ascendancy over all others. That person is a slave. And yet that's Jesus' claim on you. I am that one thing you are to fear. I am that one thing you are to love above all. Now how can he say that without being cruel? The Bible's answer is simple. Jesus' demand that we love him above all is an act of love because he is above all. He is infinitely worthy of our love because he has loved us infinitely. You see, loving him is what we were made for. It's how we've been sewn together. If we don't obey his command, we've in fact missed the whole point of human existence. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you were made for him to feel a strong affection for his nature and his ways, to love his voice, to know the deep joy of friendship with him, to long for his presence, to be filled with an unstinting gratitude for him that he loved you even before you even knew him. That's what it looks like to be worthy of him. And that's what it looks like to be human, not just existing but fully and wonderfully alive. You see, if Jesus did not make himself that one thing, if he did not exalt himself over all, even your family, even your life, then he'd be hiding from you the one love for which you were made. If he really loves us, he will command us to set our affections on him for his glory and for our joy. And for me to love anything or anyone more than him well, it's suicide. Sounds a bit over the top, doesn't it? But have a look again at verse 39. Whoever finds his life, whoever holds it tightly, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, says Jesus. So there they are, fear and love. The great motivators of the human experience. We shrink back from what we fear automatically. And we are drawn towards what we love by an even more unstoppable drive. If you master fear and order love rightly, says Jesus, you will be the disciple he is calling you to be here. A servant just like your master. So let me challenge you this week to ask yourselves these two questions. What is it that I fear? Where is it that my fear stops me following Jesus all the way to the cross? Whether it be the fear of lost opportunity, the, the fear of rejection, the fear of a loss of comfort. What is it that I fear? And secondly, what is it that would compete with your love for Jesus? For whose approval would you be willing to depart from him? Now let me close uh, by reading you a declaration by a disciple of Jesus. Now it's unclear as to who made this declaration, but most attribute it to an African pastor who lost his life for being a disciple of Christ. And this is what he said. I am part 
of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense and my future secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, chintzy giving and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, live by prayer and labour by his power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven and my road is narrow and way rough. But my guide is reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of my enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up or burn up till I've preached up, prayed up, paid up and stored up and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will go until he comes, I will give until he drops. I will preach until all know and I will work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problems recognising me. My colours will be clear. There is fear overcome and love focused on Christ. His colours are clear. Let me ask you, if your life could be captured in one drawing, one painting... If a master artist could bring all the complexity of who you are and your character and your decisions onto a canvas, what would the picture look like? How clear and distinct would the colours be? Would they be the colours of fear resisted in the confidence that God will never leave you or forsake you? Will it be the colours of love passionately centred on Jesus because he is infinitely worthy? Love expressed perhaps at great cost in your family and in your life. Or will it be the colours that kind of get blurred along the way, all greyish and brown, the way colours tend to go? Hard to make out exactly what you were about. Are you a fanatic? Not of Lego, because that is absurd, but of him, for his cause. How clear is your fearlessness for him? How strong your love? Is it a reflection of his Because his colours are clear, aren't they? He has demonstrated his great love for you in that while you were a sinner, he died for you. That's why we share communion, as we'll do in a moment. His colours are clear. As it was with the Master, so it must be with us. Anyone who does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Well, may we be worthy of him. Let's pray.